is so good to see all of you here this morning as we continue in our study of the great book of First Timothy. I want to begin with an illustration. Um, years ago, when I attended the Ligonier Conference, that would be R.C. Sproul's conference, uh, they would often have, in between speakers and sessions, they would have a question and answer period. Um, and, and by the way, I just saw this last week in looking for illustrations, they actually have some of the humorous moments um, of those meetings uh, between John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul. So we'll, when we're standing around doing nothing or some special time, we'll have to check those out. But there was one of the uh, question and answer times when R.C. Sproul Jr., R.C. Sproul's son, was there, and he was there for many of them, they asked him a very interesting question. They said, what was it like growing up with R.C. Sproul being your father? And uh, he spoke very highly of his dad, of course, uh, theologically correct, but also of R.C. Sproul's intellect and ability to reason with his son. And he gives the story that he came home from college one summer and he had let his hair grow long. And uh, so he goes up and he's in front of his dad and his dad greets him. And, and then at some point, uh, R.C. Sproul said to him, well, you're going to get your hair cut, aren't you? And R.C. Sproul Jr., a, a heavyweight intellect in his own right, said, well, dad, I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's worship is of the heart, and it doesn't matter how we look. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. And R.C. Sproul said, I, I understand that, but, you know, we have some folks in our church that may not understand that, and it just might be helpful if, if you were to get a haircut. And R.C. Sproul Jr. said, but Dad, they're old-fashioned. And they're old-fashioned in the way they dress. And R.C. Sproul looked at him and said, I thought you just said it didn't matter. <laughs> the next day, he got a haircut. That's what he said. Now, that may have been more towards Christian liberty than what we're going to talk about this morning we are going to talk about proper adornment of women in the church. Probably one of the most dangerous, potentially dangerous sermons I could ever preach. So I'm just going to say from the get-go that the best way to dress for a pastor is to dress in accordance to what he's going to preach on. And I have an illustration of that. So here is a fellow, you can see the striped jacket, polka-dotted polka pants, uh, flowered tie, and he says, tonight I'll be using a harmony of the Gospels as my text. So perhaps that's one way to deal with it. But in all seriousness, one of the things I don't want to do is to be legalistic in this sermon. We, we would all oppose legalism. But at the same time, I want to say, we must be careful that if we say it just absolutely does not matter at all what we wear, 
then we are infringing upon this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And so let's turn to that this morning. Let's read that again. And of course, we, we know that this whole idea of 1 Timothy, I've called it fighting the good fight in the church. Everything from false teaching to proper conduct, um, it's fighting the good fight and it's in the church. What we are going to take a look at this morning is proper adornment of women in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. It says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. And I also believe this would be also somewhat applicable to men. He qualifies it and says, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or poor pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Let's pray. Father, as we embark upon this passage Oh God, would you give us wisdom? Wisdom that we do what is right according to you and your word in all areas. If our lives are to be comprised of worship of you in all areas, not just at church, then Father, give us the wisdom to do that in a way that's pleasing to you and in a way that's not a bad testimony so, Father, we ask you now to give us wisdom and give us wisdom on both sides. Lord, we don't want to be legalistic. We don't want to go beyond what this scripture says, but yet we do want to explain what it does say. And we'll thank you for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I want to begin with the context of First Timothy so far. And it began with, Timothy's commission against false teaching. So again, isn't that so interesting? As this is the conduct in the church, the first thing that Paul brings up is false teaching. Don't allow it to come in. He goes on to explain, that is Paul, the proper view between law and grace. Law is good when you understand it in the proper perspective of grace, that it leads you to Christ who died on the cross. And the church is to be involved then. In chapter 2, it began with prayer for individuals. And the prayer was evangelistic prayer, not only so that there's peace, so we can carry out our Christianity, but also for salvation of all men. And then he decides to talk about this, about while we're talking about praying for salvation, what is salvation? It's salvation through Christ's mediation between a holy God and sinful man. Something that I think the false teachers did not grasp. And then in verse 8, the last verse we covered, he talks about all men praying. In fact, let me go ahead and read this. It says, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray. 
lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So let me begin with that. To say that there were no problems at Ephesus would give no reason for why the letter would have to be written. Now, when we looked at verse 8, when he says, I want men in every place to pray, it wasn't that women cannot pray. Paul is now beginning, he is the master of segues. He is beginning to segue into men and their spiritual qualities and leadership qualities, yea, even leadership in the church. However, it's interesting, he says, to do this, to pray this way without wrath and dissension. And there is this idea when you interpret the Bible, especially these epistles, when something is mentioned, there's a good indication that there's a problem going on either in that church or in another church that he thinks he needs to bring it up. Doesn't waste any ink. And so he says to pray in every place without wrath and dissension. And so he begins this section here talking about, hey, look, this is what you're supposed to do, but don't let wrath and contention and dissensions destroy that. Don't let it destroy you. And if you're doing that, you must change. And then he turns in verse 9 to women. And here's where he's talking about their adornment. And we get the idea that there was a problem with their adornment. And he's going to explain what kind of adornment caused the problem there. But he's going to deal with this problem in the church, and he's giving this to Timothy. So this is really, in a way, for all of us in the church. The if you look at the passage here, look how he says, likewise. Likewise, in a similar way, I want women, and then he goes on. He's saying, look, there, I, I want the men to do something, the leadership, and I want them to do it without these problems of wrath, contention, and dissension. But likewise, I want the women to do something too. Now, some have said, because it was about prayer, they're talking, Paul is talking to them about prayer, which, I, I mean, that would certainly be uh, within reason because we know that in the Bible at times we see women praying with men as they were waiting for the Holy Spirit. It's not, it's not, it's not, a, it's not prohibited. You know, we certainly can have that prayer time even here at Grace Bible Church after a Bible study where we pray and women are free to pray. But the point that was, I think, being made here is about adornment. Their problem wasn't as leaders, because we're going to talk about male leadership in Timothy. It wasn't about their praying as leaders. It is about something else. It is about their adornment. And so we come to the proper adornment of women in the church. So let me just give you three points the first one is he's going to talk about the proper wardrobe of women. Secondly, he's going to talk about the proper works of women. And thirdly, he's going to talk about the proper worship of women. And all three of these are connected together. 
Now let's talk about adornment for a moment, where he says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. Now adorn is the Greek word cosmeo. We do get the English word cosmetics from it. But it comes from the root cosmos, the world, cosmos. And even though we see in the Bible where cosmos is this chaotic, evil disorder, the creation of this world, God the creator, it is an ordered, arranged world. Not like the other planets that you cannot live there, but this is an ordered and arranged world. And so he says, I want your arrangement of apparel to be proper. I just want to say that the, the joke that goes with this is when you think about cosmos and you think about cosmetics, if cosmos means something that's ordered and arranged, cosmetics only means you're bringing order to disorder, okay? That's what you mean there. All right. But the question would be, what's proper? What is proper clothing? Um, again, there is a sense in that man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. But Paul is telling them, the women, that there is a proper adornment. He doesn't go into what necessarily they should wear, but he does go into detail in what they shouldn't wear. And I think that's a key. Now, when he uses the word proper here, this also has its root in cosmeo. And so it's almost a play of on words that, that, that your adornment is to be an ordered and respectable arrangement. And we do get the word respectable from it. When we get into the qualifications for elders, this is going to be one of them. Not that they adorn themselves, but here's the word, respectable. An overseer, 1 Timothy 3, 2, then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable. That's the word. Hospitable, able to teach. Well, so, so he's saying to wear proper and appropriate attire uh, in church, respectable. And now he's going to qualify it. And, and I, I think this is helpful. I think this is what keeps us from being legalistic. Uh, you know, just not saying, well, hey, we have to have a bunch of rules of what you're going to wear. Um, you know, you, you've got to pay attention to that. Now, I have to say that um, as a pastor... I, I don't really pay a whole lot of attention to that, and I'm sorry. I hope that doesn't really offend anyone because I'm the one that I'm so thankful for our live streaming is that I'm able to go back and watch the, and look at the suit jacket that I wore the previous week that I don't repeat it, okay? But there is this idea of a proper a, a, adornment and you would include the idea of worship with it all right well the first thing he says is modestly he's going to say discreetly but he's going to say modestly and I think this is really one of the big emphasis in this idea the other one is going to be costly and wealthy 
So these are going to be the two big things that come about that he says, look, don't be a part of this. Now, what does it mean, modesty? Now, this is an interesting word, and I, you know I love word studies, and I, I, this is why I love Greek, because it, it, I mean, you understand what modest is. We wouldn't need to go any further, but let's go a little further. It's idos, which carries the meaning of a sense of shame. Modesty is not wearing anything that will cause shame. Shame to God or shame to you or shame to your testimony. So this is helping us put it together. Again, we're not, we're not defining anything. I understand that styles change and really nothing you can do about some of these. I was just thinking the other day that, you know, um, when I was growing up, we had pants that were slim and straight legged. Well, they have those now. And then they have regular pants that fit you normal. And then we have the error of bell bottoms, um, which I'm sure most people in that time would have worn them. I was telling this to my wife, and I said, isn't it interesting how these all go away and then sometimes come back? I said, except for bell, bell bottoms. And she goes, no, bell bottoms are now coming into fashion as well. Everything is. Well, I understand that, but we're talking about something at a deeper level. That which brings respect and worship to God, that which is modest and won't tarnish a person's testimony. Now, let's go a little deeper here, and I think discreetly is more of the idea of what he's talking about, and I think this has to do with self-control and not dressing sensually. It has no place in the church. And so this word for discreet, uh, it is the Greek word sophrosune, and it has to do with the mind and making a judgment. It means a good judgment, or it also means having self-control in order to make a good judgment, not just letting everything go to your emotions or your feelings, but good judgment. And this word is used in the New Testament, but this word also carries with it the idea of being discreet and having self-control in one's passions and impulses, even sexual passions and impulses. It also has the meaning of chastity, that which is pure, chastity. In fact, if you look at this work, word in classical Greek references, many of the philosophers used this word in that way. It was a virtue. A virtue, chastity or discretion in the way one dressed was a virtue. Now, I understand that you could go through the New Testament and you'll see that a lot of times this word is just translated self-control, which in general can mean all areas, including the area of passions and impulses. But some of the other men, uh, good Greek grammarians, believe that it carries this idea. So I'm not just making it up or trying to push this on you. Um, Mounts, William Mounts, who wrote several Greek books, and we've even looked at some of them. He writes, both modesty and discreetly carry sexual connotations. 
And so we're beginning to see, well, if there was a problem at the church in Ephesus, maybe some of the women were dressing risque. And it's wrong. It's wrong from many different angles. John MacArthur writes that discreet basically refers to self-control over sexual passions. And it comes out in one's attire. Godly women hate sin and control their passions so as to not lead another into sin. Which is one of the facets of why Paul is saying this. So in this context, and I think it's right, you, you look at the context to really make the final decision in how you should translate a word, and a word that means self-control when he's saying you should have proper and respectable clothing, it would have this connotation, restraint of passions that even comes out in one's apparel. It would come out not only for oneself, but it also would include good judgment and in not eliciting passions and impulses in other people. So it's not only upon yourself, but it's thinking about what happens to other people. Hendrickson writes this, dressing modestly and discreetly is more of a fashion statement, so to speak, about the spiritual condition of one's heart than one's physical appearance. In other words, they dress the way they dress because they believe the way they believe. In this case, God-honoring, God-glorifying belief. Now, I want to give an illustration that uh, many, many years ago, I worked in the grocery business, even here in Gillette, Wyoming. Uh, you know, you meet all kinds of people, you deal with all kinds of things. You don't have to go into the grocery business to go into the ministry. It just helps, okay? But in the summertime, there was a particular young woman who would dress very risque to come through the grocery store. Holter top, very inappropriate. And I, I remember just getting the idea, this woman is doing this purposely. She's doing this to see how many guys she can get to look at her. And that offended me. That offended me that here's this person trying to get men, myself included, to be tempted and to sin. Because whoever looks at a woman to lust after has committed adultery with her in his heart, Jesus said. And so it, it truly offended me. Now, we say, well, that's the world, and you would expect it from the world, but it's still not right. It's Hollywood, but it's not right. You would say that would never have a place in the church, and yet it does. Recently, not too long ago, there was a church full of scandal, by the way, still full of scandal, that had a woman's conference and one of the pastors dressed up like, or rather dressed down like, the character called the Naked Cowboy. This was a woman's conference. 
you know what? That offends me too. If my wife or my daughter would have been at that conference, I'd have been extremely upset wanting to go talk to him. But it should have never happened. And so it's not surprising to find out that there are other programs from this church where pastors' wives on stage, I believe you could say, dressed inappropriately on purpose. And there's even programs, there was a Christmas program where teens dressed scantily as well. That shows us that that is what's going on today or could go on today, and I don't think every church, but it's just so amazing to see the ebb and the flow. Um, you, you think, well, don't worry, it's not a big deal. You know what? That's what we used to say about some of these crazy beliefs that they have in false teaching. Don't worry, no one will ever believe that, and, and for some reason, people are drawn to the crazy and even to the immoral. Now, let me say, uh, I, and and I don't. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. Uh, I, I just. I, I've just. I've heard this on occasion. The argument would be: Well, if the men are looking, that's their own fault. And you know what? You're right. You're right. Men should not be looking. In such a way. You know, it says, Job chapter 31, verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? And so, just because it's there, just because it's on a billboard, just because it's in Hollywood, just because it's a fashion, doesn't mean I can gawk at it. Oh, not to look at those things. Oh, no. Man, men ought to have self-control. So I would agree with that. But the other side of it is, but women should not be presenting a temptation to men. So this whole idea of discreet is not only discreetly and respectable how they dress, but also thinking about what they bring across to another. The adornment should not be sensual. should be anything but sensual. And not to be legalistic, but the more non-sensual it is, the less I have a problem with it. Well, you can't wear that. They don't wear that today in these styles. I want to know why we have to copy styles. Now, again, I, I mentioned the bell bottoms and all of that. And, um, you know, I will have to say that, you know, when, when uh, growing up and, we talked about how you would wear a suit and the ties. And, uh, I mean, all of that had to work together. I, I will say that has loosened up, and almost any tie in my wardrobe will work on any given Sunday, no matter what kind of shirt I'm wearing. So, I, you know, <laughs> that's good. I still, I still am a little old-fashioned, you know. But I don't understand why we have to copy the styles, especially when they're sensual, especially when they're worldly. We ought to separate ourselves from the worldly. And to say, I'm going to dress a particular way like them to win them, I think is foolish. I don't think there's wisdom there. I don't think there's wisdom. I mean, as if, as if, 
I could convert someone by what I wear. But what if they make fun of our lack of sensuality? What if they make fun of our godliness? And we have just fulfilled what it says in, in, in the scriptures. All those who live godly will suffer persecution. Good for you then. Now, I am not talking about just forsaking it all. And, you know, uh, you know I'm not <laughs> talking about that. You, you, you can only wear what nuns wear or, or, or anything like that. I'm not saying that at all. So I'm not going down that road. There is freedom in what you choose, but there, are, there should be guidelines. And I will also say this. We've got to be careful that we don't take the pendulum the other way. I knew of a young man, became a Christian, did not want to draw attention to himself and wore a very old jacket with holes in it. And finally, someone asked him, why, why do you wear this? He said, well, I don't want to draw attention to myself. And they wisely said, well, you know, sometimes you draw more attention going the other way. I, I, also, think of, I also think of the idea of, just on a humorous note, when I was in Bible college, uh, the, in my theology class, the professor was talking about the sovereignty of God and, you know, and prayer and the sovereignty of God. And, and he makes the comment, he says, well, you know, the sovereignty of God and the will of God, he said, you know, when I got up this morning, I didn't pray for God's will to pick out this tie. And I thought to myself, obviously. <laughs> so I don't want to go beyond what scripture says, but there is this idea of respectability and not dressing sensually. And I think this could even apply to men too. Uh, he's speaking to women, and so it seems as if they were having that problem there. So in this idea of not adorning oneself sensually, let's, let's go on. Well, it says then, not with braided hair and gold. So we're moving now, and it seems like we're moving to an area where he says, you know, don't, don't be wearing the wealthy and, and uh, drawing self-attention to yourself. Except that there is a sense, I, I came across a sense where some have said the braided hair and the gold were not necessarily only of the wealthy, but were also of the immoral. One writes, in that culture, temple prostitutes were known for their extravagant attire and beaded hair. John Stott quotes what Dr. Hurley said about the ancient prostitutes. The courtesans wore their hair in numerous small pendant braids with gold droplets of pearls or gems every inch or so, making a shimmering screen of their locks. By dressing lavishly and promiscuously, they would attract suitors. Since this was popular in the culture, women throughout society of that day modeled this type of dress. And you would say, why? Why? And again, Paul is saying it should not be named 
among the women. Now, this is not saying that you cannot braid your hair. In fact, I, you know, what do I know? But I, I have seen braided hair in such a way that I, I thought it was very, very godly. And, and so it's like that. This is not to say that you can't have certain things and, and ornaments and jewelry. It's not to say that. But in this instance, I think he's still talking about sensuality. And I think this is the segue into the rich and unfamous in the church. He next mentions pearls. And in ancient times, pearls were all the rave. Now, now when we have pearl farms and all of that, pearls are still popular, but not like they were so rare at that time. They were a costly commodity in ancient times. And the pearl oyster was found in the Persian Gulf over there and in the Red Sea. And not just the pearls themselves, but you women probably know this, that the shell itself is called the mother of pearl. And that also is of great value and an ornament. And I was looking at some of that on the, the internet. I thought, wow, isn't that cool? And, and uh, we're looking at God's creation and, and, and God is a God of creativity. The pearls are mentioned in the book of Job, Proverbs, Matthew, and of course even the book of Revelation where the gate is made up of one entire pearl. One writes this though, that in the 5th century BC, Rome's pearl craze reached its zenith during the first century BC. Roman women upholstered couches with pearls, the wealthy women, and sewed so many into their gowns that they actually walked on their pearl encrusted hems. Caligula, having made his horse a consul, decorated it with a pearl necklace. And Cleopatra made a bet with Mark Anthony on who could, who could have the most expensive dinner? Who could put on the most expensive dinner? And when he was there, she took a pearl, crushed it, added liquid to it, and she drank it. And he conceded she had won. The, and there's still nothing wrong with pearls. I, I, I mean, I get it. And, you know, when we buy our, our fiancé's rings, we try to do the best we can. You know, so we, these, these things aren't totally inappropriate. But as we move to pearls, now we're starting to talk about prestige. It's a thing of prestige. Why in the world would we come in and try to promote prestige when there is no prestige in sinners with a sinful nature? The only great thing about us is that we've been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ and that's why we're here, to worship him who saved us. Now again, I am not talking against jewelry. When I was in Israel, I wanted to get Darlene something and I bought her what is called an Eilat stone. It's a stone that's only found in the southern part of Israel in Elah. They call it Elah. Now, 
I have given that to her. I think, are you wearing that today? Okay. All right. Because she wasn't sure how this sermon was going to turn out. (laughs) Now you say, well, wasn't that expensive? Well, it first was when Abu was trying to sell it to me. And I just kept saying, no, no, no. Finally, Dale comes over to me and says, man, you're not, you're not going to get it any cheaper than this. So I ended up buying it, but I won it. It's a beautiful blue and green turquoise stone that's only made in Israel. And I, I bought that for my wife. I never, never thought at all about saying, well, she might be the only one in our church that has it. Never my thought at all. It just, you know, I wanted something for my wife while I was there. And how cool is this something from Israel that I, I will think about? So, you know, you may have things like that and you may wear them to church. And not, we're, not, we're not against that at all. But it's the idea that this expensive jewelry was done for prestige and it has no place in the church. The next one is certainly in this same category, costly clothing. Obviously, the word costly in Greek means extremely expensive, by, worn mostly by the wealthy. The problem was that in the world, this ancient world as well as today, women were known for competing with other women to be the most socially noticed and talked about. And so they had these. Some of it was sensual. We've talked about that. But some of it is just about wealth, competing. But there was no such place in Paul's viewpoint under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mind you, that it had a place in the church. Such behavior only draws attention to oneself. And that's not why we're here. We're to draw attention to him, to worship him, not ourselves. We're to focus on worship. John MacArthur writes, The same was true of those women who wore costly clothing. By doing so, they would draw attention to themselves and away from the Lord, likely causing the poor women to be envious. Paul's point was to forbid the preoccupation of certain women with flaunting their wealth and distracting people from worshiping the Lord. And I saw this quote mentioned by several commentators. It's quite a scathing one written by Alfred Plummer. He writes, And what then is modest apparel? Such as covers them completely and decently and not with superfluous ornaments for the one is decent and the other is not what do you approach God to pray with broidered hair and ornaments of gold in in the negative sense are you come to a ball or to a marriage feast to a carnival there such costly things might have been seasonable but here not one of them is wanted You are come to pray, to ask pardon for your sins, to plead for your offenses, beseeching the Lord and hoping to render him propitious to you away with such hypocrisy. So, interesting, in the light of the biblical interpretation, and so we draw from this that not only is there not to be sensual adornment or apparel, It is not to be for prestige. It is not to compete 
with or to draw attention to ourselves or to draw away from worship because obviously worship is what it's all about. And this is where we have the change in verse 10. And you could very well connect this with 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, which we will talk about. And so in verse 10, it says, But rather, by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So now we're moved away from the proper wardrobe of women to the proper works of women. And the idea here, just like Peter talked about, is the heart, the inner person, the hidden heart. That's what it is. And I, I once heard one time someone describe it as, we, we ought to dress, and particularly women, but we ought to dress in such a way that it highlights our countenance because it's our countenance that highlights our spirit. And if our spirit is a godly spirit, a worshipful spirit, that's what people are able to see and ought to see. So the proper adornment for women is not expressed in apparel or jewelry or style, but rather the proper adornment for women and men is a worshipful heart towards God demonstrated in good works. That's the idea of it. First Peter chapter 3, I'll just read it. We'll pick it up again next week. First Peter chapter 3, under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, your adornment must not be merely external braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. That's what our Christian life is all about. Our Christian life isn't trying to fit in somehow with the styles that are going on in the world or even in other churches. It ought to be about being conformed to the image of Christ, pressing on towards the goal of Christ, i.e. Christ-likeness. Warren Wearsby writes, Ephesus was a wealthy commercial city and some women there competed against each other for attention and popularity. In that day, expensive hairdos arrayed with costly jewelry were an accepted way to get to the top socially. Paul admonished the Christian women to major on the inner person the true beauty that only Christ can give. He did not forbid the use of nice clothing or ornaments. He urged balance and propriety with the emphasis on modesty and holy character. And when we think about good works, we could certainly think of the many women in the Bible. The many women in the Bible, we would think of perhaps Rahab, in Joshua, who welcomed the spies in peace, even though she was a harlot, and then obviously a convert. We could think of Esther, who, even though the name God is not used one time in the book of Esther, it was through Esther that the Jewish people were kept from destruction 
by her submission and her right way to appeal to an authority. Those who have been studying with me in, in Kings, you remember the Shunammite woman who fed and housed Elijah because she knew he was a man of God. How about Ruth? Ruth dealt kindly with her mother-in-law and others. That's what it says in Ruth 1.8. Moving to the New Testament, we have Dorcas. She used her talents to relieve the needy. Lydia manifested Christian hospitality to Paul after they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Eunice and Lois, Timothy's mother and grandmother, they passed on sincere faith. Good works, right? Teaching them, teaching the children. Phoebe was a helper of many in Romans chapter 16. Euodia and Syntyche, yes, there was a problem there, and he was writing to them, but he said that they shared in the cause of Paul's ministry. There are other examples, and I dare say, from Grace Bible Church, and thank you. Examples of meals for the sick, encouragement of women by women, a commitment in prayer to pray for one another, using musical talents to minister, teaching children, teaching women, as well as other ministries. That is the proper adornment of women in the church, an adornment of a worshipful heart, an adornment of godliness. Notice this last phrase. The last phrase says, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So I see this as the proper worship of women coming to the culmination of this. So what is it for women in the church that, what, you, what do you aspire? Well, of course you aspire to be godly. And what is it that you men aspire to? To be godly and spiritual leaders of your families and of your homes. But the women are to be godly, making claims that this is what they want, this is what they aspire to. So this is how you do it. And, and what is godliness? You know, I, I said it'd be very easy for us to think that godliness is being like God. But if you go back to the Greek, it means to worship properly. It's a lifestyle of worship. And when you look at this word godliness, this one here has the inclusion of the word theos, meaning emphatically worship to God, worship before God, even in our attire. This similar word, theosabian, means beliefs and practices relating to worship and reverence to God. It is a life with an emphasis on the worship of God. Everything in our lives ought to be worship. Our good works ought to come out because we worship him. How we speak, how we react, how we, it's all related to how we worship, and even our attire. So everything we do is to be done in worship toward God. Worship is the source 
of our good works, and it affects every area of life, including our attire when we worship. But let me close with this. A word should be said about judging others and legalism. Now, if we are concentrating on our own worship of God, our own good works, there is little time for looking at the apparel of others and judging them. This is what we see here. So we have to guard against that. As we, as we look at all of these things, we find ourselves gaining several principles. All of our apparel, especially the women, especially the women, should not be sensual in any way. Yes, men should not be looking at you. Christian men should not be looking at you in that way. But you should not be giving Christian men an opportunity to look at you in that way. It is not for prestige of who you are because who you are is who you are in Christ. That's your identity. It's not to compete. Now maybe there's a competition out there for who has the coolest knife. Okay, I get that. But it's really not. It's really not. And there's even some women that are involved in there. I'm highly impressed. <laughs> but not to compete in apparel or trying to draw attention to ourselves. That's not what it's about. We draw attention to Christ. And we are not to try to draw people's attention away from worship. That, we, don't, we don't want to be a spectacle one way or the other. We want to just draw our attention to worshiping God and drawing others' attention to God. It is attire that corresponds with the worship heart after all we have come to worship the king of kings and the lord of lords let's pray father we thank you for your word it does cover every area lord we might even say it covers more areas than we're comfortable with but it makes no difference as we follow your word, follow your principles, Father, you do indeed fill us with your spirit and your word is revealed to us and we are worshiping and leading others in worship. And Father, maybe even that testimony will be a reason why someone says, why don't you dress sensually like other women? Why do you refrain from that? And there could be an opportunity to share the gospel of Christ and allow the Holy Spirit to do his regenerating work in the heart. For your glory, Lord, to worship you. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.